Well, go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is a table in the back with several copies on there. If you don't have a copy, personally, feel free to take that. That's our gift to you. If you just need a new copy of God's Word, that's there as well. So, Matthew chapter 5. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a while now, and we're continuing this morning. Um, we're in the second of these six statements that Jesus makes pertaining to what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. What is an outward expression, the citizen of the kingdom, look like? And so we're in this, this second statement. We're going to look at verses 27 through 30. Um, but by way of review, before we jump in, we want to think a little bit about what we talked about last week, and in particular, what we've been talking about over the course of, of the last several, several weeks. So, again, you'll know that we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but God is setting apart uh, people for himself, in particular in this, in this text, in, these, in this group of, of, of sayings that Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 5 through 7. He is giving his people a, a picture of what it looks like to be a, a kingdom citizen. So what he's saying is, hey, look at what the way that the world lives. Look at the things that, that you've heard previously in the past and look at the things now that I am saying to you because this is how a citizen of the kingdom lives. Look at verse 48 in, in Matthew chapter 5. This is the most important verse um, to, in, in relation to these six things with anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love for enemies. Verse 48 is a summary statement for all of these things. Jesus says to his disciples, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, referring to these things that he commands them, and particularly verse 21 through 47. So when he says, You must be perfect, he's telling his disciples they must be whole, they must be complete. What does that mean? It means that the inside, what's going on in the inside, must match what's going on in the outside. The things that are done externally must flow from some internal change, some newness that's different from the world. External morality is only part of the picture. This, this new way of being for Jesus' followers as kingdom citizens must come from the inside. So the, the followers of Jesus, their tendency was to maybe modify some behavior on the outside. This is what the religious leaders and their, their rabbis, their teachers would have told them in the day to, to look at what you do externally and to make sure that that's, that's good and that's in line with the law. Um, but that's our, and we can see clearly that that's our tendency also. We like the behavior modification path that's easy. It's good for us to look good on the outside. We feel good when we, when we do things well. But, but Jesus is saying there's something more going on here. Remember we talked about Jesus' ministry, his life and his ministry, and ultimately culminating in his death, burial, and resurrection as, a, as an act of new creation. This is what's happening. He should be made new. His disciples, through this teaching, are being reconstructed. They're being made new through what Jesus says. And so before we get to this text this morning, I think you just need to, to say a few things. So the next two weeks, we're going to be dealing with some difficult topics, things that are things that are incredibly sensitive in our culture. One this morning, adultery, and in particular, lust. And, and Jesus is talks about his sexual ethic. But then next week, we'll be talking about divorce. And we know that these two, these two things are, are prevalent in our society. 
So, but what we need to do is when we look here, especially in these two, these two places in verses 27 through 30 this morning and next week, verses 31 and 32, we need to see that God isn't giving us through Jesus here just a set of arbitrary rules. But what he's doing is he's, he's, making, he's showing us what it means to be made in his, in his image and what it means to live the way that he intended. And we'll talk about that more as we move through these things. But we need to approach these two texts with open minds because these are going to cut significantly against cultural grain. These are going to cut significantly against cultural grain. And we need to, so we need to approach these and come to them and say, this is God's word, right? This is God's word. Our tendency is to be influenced by our culture. And a lot of times when we're influenced by our culture, when it comes to our sexual ethic or when it comes to divorce in particular, we, we don't even think about this. We don't even think about the ways in which we are being inundated with a, a handful of, a handful of half truths or pseudo truths that are given to us by our culture. So whatever the popular narrative is in our world, Jesus' followers were susceptible to the exact same thing here. They were susceptible to the exact same thing. And Jesus is, again, he's giving them a new way of being. Not just a new way of doing, but a new way of being. This is essence. He's giving them a new, new essence. And this new identity that they have in, is the same identity that you have if you're here this morning and you're in Christ. It's the same identity that you have if you're in Christ. And so these words then are for us. They're, they're for us and we need to heed them. We need to take them seriously. We need to give them the weight that they, that they communicate to us here in our lives. So the question is like, because these words are for us, we ask the question, Jesus, then how do we live? How do we live as new creatures? How do we live as, as a new creation? How do we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Because we're not citizens of the kingdom of this world anymore, but we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And what does that kingdom look like? It looks markedly different. It looks markedly different than, than, the, than citizens of the kingdom of the world look like. But how? How is that? One way, one simple way, and we've mentioned this throughout our time in the Sermon on the Mount, one simple way is that we submit to the Word of God. We look at the Word of God and we say, here in the Word of God, we see the specific commands given, the way in which we should live, and we, we look at these things and we say, here it is, this is the way that we live. And that's very different than the world. That's very different than the world. The world shoots at a moving target. It's a moving target. It's when the culture identifies and moves. And this, is, and this is sometimes more subtle than we think, too. Lots of times we subscribe to, say, like moral standards and assume they find their, their origins in Scripture. And it, when in, 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 in reality, they don't come from Scripture at all, but come from our culture and not from God's Word. And so that's what's happening here. Jesus' words don't match. They don't match what the religious culture says. They don't match what the religious leaders are saying to uh, the people who they have a, a voice in in their lives, but rather they go deeper. We can see that because Jesus starts each of these six statements with, you have heard it that it's said to those of old or something similar. But then Jesus comes and he amplifies the commands. He demands something more from his followers as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as new creations. He demands something more than just a subscription to an external moral standard. So again, come to this text with an open mind. Again, these are difficult things that we're going to be dabbling in over the course of the next few weeks. Um, this undoubtedly, hopefully, will make us think twice uh, and allow it to expose some stuff in ourselves too. 
And remember, this is God's gracious revelation of who he is to us. And so we're going we're gonna to touch on those things too. God graciously is revealing who he is to us in the pages of Scripture. So when we come to a difficult text like this, it's not just, a, again, a set of arbitrary rules. But God's saying to, saying to us, here is who I am and here is who I created you to be as someone who bears my image. So let's read this text together. Look with me, verses 27 through 30 in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read this aloud for us, and we'll think through what Jesus says here to his disciples. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lust, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. So like we did last week, we want to look at what Jesus' disciples have heard. And then we want to see what Jesus says to his disciples. And then there's a clear so what given in each of these six statements or each of these six ideas. So what? How then do we live is the question that, that Jesus uh, answers unprompted. Um, this morning, in particular, in verses 29 and 30. So what have Jesus' disciples heard, right? Jesus starts out, verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. This is one of the Ten Commandments, right? This is the seventh commandment. Um, but what we need to see here and what we need to understand is that with this being the seventh commandment, um, this is something that, uh, that oftentimes got loosened a little bit in, in, in Jewish culture. Um, there were some particular rabbis, especially during Jesus' day, who took this to mean they would interpret in light of the Tenth Commandment, um, where, uh, where God tells his people not to covet. We'll, we'll touch on that in a little bit. But when he tells them not to covet um, their, 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 their neighbor's property or their neighbor's wife or any other thing related to those. They took it to mean that this was to have sexual relations with, with one's neighbor, with one's neighbor, which meant just simply a, 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 another Israelite. But the majority view was probably far more conservative than that. The majority view was just to have sexual relationship with someone who isn't your spouse. To have sexual relationship with someone who isn't your spouse. And so that's probably where Jesus' followers would have heard this. Um, now, now in our culture, right, there's something similar, but, but we see that sexual relationship with someone other than someone's spouse oftentimes is not is not, not, not only permissible in our culture, but sometimes it's celebrated. You don't have to go much farther than just turning on your television. You don't have to go much farther than just turning on your television to hear someone at least talking about uh, adultery in the way that Jesus is, is talking about it. And so here's a way in which we, as the church, as the body of Christ, as those who have experienced newness in Christ, here's a way in which we need to, we need to begin to distance ourselves from, from the world. And I'm going to give you two categories here. One, the ethic of self, and one, the ethic that Jesus gives us. The ethic of self is the way that, that the world, or our culture in particular, sort of lives its life. It looks, at, it looks at the self and says that's the highest good, and this extends just beyond the, 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 the topic at hand. But the, the ethic of self says, as long as it's not hurting anyone, go for it. Go ahead and do it. That's what the ethic of self says. It's rooted in sort of this misguided understanding of, of freedom. What does it mean to be free? 
Our culture says that, well, let me read you this quote. This is from Kevin DeYoung. He says it like this. In our culture, freedom is the ability to do what we want. In the Bible, freedom is the ability to do what we should. And this is a big, a big shift in our thinking. If we say we're free, we want to do what we want when we want to do it, that's very different than when the Bible says you're free. When the Bible says that you're free, it is talking about um, God through his spirit is communicating to us that we are now free to live as God intended us to live before sin entered our world. And so one major lie in our culture that our culture has told us for a long time is that sexuality is something that belongs to us exclusively. Something that belongs to us exclusively. And it's a resource for each of us to pursue our own pleasure and we should have the freedom to use it in whatever way that we choose. But the Bible, again, and Jesus in particular here, is telling us a very different story. And in many ways, culture sort of reduces people to sexual orientation or, or how broad or narrow their sexual activity extends, which is sort of a great irony. But the underlying truth here is that sexuality and the choices that are made around sexuality are not done so in a vacuum like culture wants to tell us. They're not done in a vacuum like culture wants to tell us. Culture tells us, it'll surely admit that there might be some unintended consequences, pregnancy, STDs, things of that nature. But um, there still is this ethic of self that governs what we do when it comes to our, our sexuality. But the biblical understanding of sexuality extends beyond those immediate consequences, although they are, they are very real. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Paul says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined with a prostitute becomes one with her? For just as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he is joined to the Lord. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, per, uh, per, a sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So that's pretty straightforward talk from Paul. That's some pretty straightforward talk from Paul. So the world says, the ethic of self says, the ethic of self says this, you are your own, go ahead and do what you want. But the biblical narrative, the biblical understanding says you're not your own, you submit to another. This is a big distinction. And what citizens of the kingdom of heaven must subscribe to, we must say together, we are not our own. We submit to another. And remember, the thrust of this whole passage and the thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is that the internal must match the external. These two things must be in step with one another. What's going on in the heart, the newness that has been created in the heart of the follower of Jesus rejects the understanding of the world's understanding of sexual relationships and sexuality. 
So before we move on, let's talk about intent. Let's talk about God's intent for, for sexuality um, because God's intent is a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. Really, two people, right? We, we, sort, of, we sort of just kind of gloss over this um, in the Christian subculture, but, but it really is just this incredible thing. Two people within the context of the marriage relationship. Um, Moses records Genesis 1, verses 27 through 28 in the creation account. He says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in Genesis 2.24, he says this, Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So these are the parameters then, right, for which God intended sexual relationship to exist. Why? Because, this is the big thing here, Why? Because oftentimes we just say, well, the Bible says it, so we do it. But here's why. God graciously reveals himself to us in this, in his intent. Because the faithfulness of God is displayed to the world in a committed husband and wife relationship. The faithfulness of God is revealed in, in the world to, in a committed husband and wife relationship. A husband-wife relationship Paul tells us in Ephesians, reflects or displays or shows the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And a violation of that intention, that picture, and ultimately distorts God's image placed on humanity. So we can look at this and we can see, yes, of course, you shall not commit adultery. We look at this and say, because committing adultery is a distortion of God's image placed on humanity. And a world that rejects that understanding of sexuality is intended to have parameters, rejects the image of God. For citizens of the kingdom, for new creatures to live within God's intent is far better than boundless sexual latitude and experience. So what does Jesus say? That's what, that's what those of old have said, right? You shall not commit adultery. But again, Jesus is amplifying these commands in a way. He's, he's reinterpreting for them something that has been interpreted one particular way for a long time in their culture. And so what does Jesus say? Look at verse 28. He says, But I say to you that everyone who looks with a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So our culture ignores even the external of this command. Our culture even ignores the external of this command. And many of our churches in Christian circles do as well. We regularly exercise sexual activity out of the parameters of marriage, and rarely are we saddened by it. Rarely are we saddened by it. Again, all you need to do is turn on your TV. But Jesus' hearers who have seen adultery as a major offense... And see with me again how Jesus amplifies this command. How he moves this command. He says, looks even with lustful intent. Looks with lustful intent. And this carries the idea that a man whose eyes linger on a woman, who allows these images to become fuel for sexual fantasy. And notice that Jesus, again, he's concerned with the heart. He's concerned with the heart. He says, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's, con he's concerned with the point of origin here. A change 
A, a changed heart is one that actively is moving towards a better understanding of God's intent. John Stott, he observes this, that Jesus' emphasis is that any and every sexual practice which is immoral in deed is immoral also in look and in thought. Taking a long look at someone and allowing your thoughts to linger and develop into sexual fantasies, the same as committing adultery with that person, is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Stott also observes, deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame and the inflaming of the imagination by the indiscipline of the eyes. Similarly, whenever men and women have learned sexual self-control indeed, it is because they have first learned it in the eyes of both flesh and fantasy. And now, because we live in a hyper-sexualized world, because we live in a hyper-sexual world, there are tons of examples. I'm going to give you one, and this is going to make us feel a little uncomfortable. But I'm going to give you an example here. The availability and unparalleled anonymity in the access to pornography in our world. We don't like to talk about this. It's really uncomfortable, but, but it's the reality. Most of us carry a device around. I don't have mine on me, but we carry a device around that has 24-7 access to the internet. Whether we're alone or whether we're together with others, we have that device on us. Let me give you a percentage. Just an alarming percentage of men regularly look at pornography. The, the Barna Group did a study um, that shows that 65% of men admit to looking at pornography at least once a month more, more often than that for most of those men. Most of them said several times a week. By that same study, they found that men who identified as Christians come in at 64%. 64%. And percentage-wise, too, the number of women who regularly view pornography is in the 30s, 30 percentile. They're, they are, this is something that's increasingly a problem in our culture for both men and women. So, church, friends, we can't be naive. We cannot be naive when it comes to the, 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 the sexual, hyper-sexualized culture that we live in. Don't, women, don't think that you're not susceptible to this. Women, don't think that your husband is immune to this. Don't be naive. Men, don't think that you can ignore the commands of Christ in this area. Don't think that you can figure this out on your own. The world and the ethic of self is interested in pursuing pleasure at all costs. It's interested in pursuing pleasure at all costs. And that's our bent, too, as those who inhabit sinful flesh, right? 65% and 64%. And we must see that the ethic that is centered around self is one that is coded in deception. It will inevitably move us to a place where personal pleasure becomes the greatest good. If we subscribe to what the world is giving us, and sex is the example here, but the pursuits of our own pleasures may manifest themselves in different ways. In money, in material, in control, and in power. And although Jesus is specifically looking at the seventh and ten commandments, right? Exodus 20, 14 is the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. In Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. It's all rooted in the first commandment. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other God before me. So sex with someone who is other than your spouse elevates self to God's rightful place. Entertaining sexual fantasies 
elevates self to God's rightful place. Entertain, or financial resources exclusively used in your own interests and pursuits elevate self to God's rightful place. Seeking to control and to have power and objectify others in situations elevates self to God's rightful place. And remember, Jesus isn't communicating. He is communicating that right relationships with people govern our ethic, right? When we talked about all of these six statements together, we see that each of these is related to having right relationship with others. You cannot, you cannot look at another with lustful intent. You cannot look at another with lustful intent and, uh, and, understand and re- understand that you have right relationship with that person. Citizens of the kingdom don't use, objectify, control, or dominate others both externally or in your mind. Rather, citizens of the kingdom of heaven see the image of God embedded in others. Understand their desperate need for God's free gift of salvation extended to all in Christ. Right relationship with God's creation and creatures indicates right relationship with God. So what, Jesus? So what? We look at verses 27 and 28. The question we get to at the end of this is, so what? And Jesus gives us that clearly, verses 29 and 30. Read those with me. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. So these are, these are tough words here. Again, probably words that get glossed over a little bit because we're like, oh, Jesus, you don't really mean for me to cut off my hand or gouge out my eye. But the, the idea that's contained within this is last week we talked about in our anger, urgency and reconciliation. This week, what Jesus is communicating is uh, radical repentance. Radical repentance. What is, what is repentance? Pur- Puritan Thomas Watson, he writes this. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. So repentance is the acknowledging of sin and turning from it. And so when we get to verses 29 and 30, we see Jesus assuming that the sin has been acknowledged. We see Jesus assuming that the sin has been acknowledged and then is followed up with radical action. What causes you to sin? Is it your right eye? Gouge it out. Is it your right hand? Cut it off. In Jesus' culture, in the ancient world, the right hand, the right side of the body would have been seen as the stronger, more dominant side of the body. That's true even in our our own world, although we don't talk about it in the ways that they talked about it. The right hand would be the hand that you greet someone with. It would be the way that you would ratify a, a legal agreement. It would be the way that you would convey blessing to someone. The right hand, the right side of the body is consistently linked with God's favor, or with favor, um, And in particular, God's favor, we see that in the Old Testament regularly. So to do away, right, to do away with the right side of the body, the hand and the eye, is to do away with the most important parts of of the body as it would be seen in the ancient world. So this is not an admonition to physically maim yourself, right, but a call to cut off in a radical fashion the cause of your sin. 
a, a call to cut off the cause of your sin. So repentance, Jesus is saying, is radical business. It cannot and should not be approached casually. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship writes this. He writes, when you make the eye the instrument of impurity, you cannot see God with it. And, and certainly that's true for things in, in our own world also. You can't honor God with your work. You can't honor God with your money, with your time, with your giftings, with your sexuality, with your relationships, with your words, with your passions, if they're impurely oriented. So ask God then to show you what the instruments of sin are in your life and cut them off, gouge them out. Do not allow them to linger any further. So this is turning away from sin in a radical fashion. Counting the cost of following Jesus and finding that literally nothing on this earth is too great to lose. Not hands, not eyes, not feet, Jesus will say later in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Not jobs, not money, not time, not talents, not gifts, not anything. So conclusion this morning. Let's think just about three things in conclusion. In particular, just this, this text, again, is not an, an easy one to approach together. Verses 27 through 30 have some difficult things to say to us. So the fact of the matter is, very few of us in this room have not been affected by something that's going on here. And maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're actually drowning in sexual sin. Or maybe you become a victim to someone else's sexual sin. What the enemy wants to do in this time is to isolate you. You feel shame, frustration, overwhelming guilt. And unfortunately, in the, the world, even the church world, the Christian culture that we live in, and we've turned sexual sin into sort of this unforgivable thing that we do. And just the, <laughs> there's an alarming rate, right? Our highly conservative religious corridors in our society are responsible for some of the most alarming rates of abortion because typically the young girl is ashamed to inform her parents that she has had premarital sex. But as we look at this, as we consider what Jesus says here to his disciples, friends, the grace of God that has been shown to you in Christ covers even this. The grace of God that has been shown to you in Christ covers even this. The blood of Jesus has washed away everything. You're clean, you're new. Christ's righteousness has been granted to you. And the call is clear. The woman who's caught in adultery in John 8, when Jesus tells her accusers to cast the first stone, they, which ones were without sin, and they all turn and they all walk away. Jesus says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. If you're steeped in sexual sin this morning, the blood of Jesus ensures that Romans 8.1 is here for you, is true for you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for the, those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, the call is clear though to the woman in John 8 and to us who find ourselves in this position. Go and sin no more. Radical repentance, eyes and hands.
This is a call to wage war against your sin. Martin Luther writes this. He wrote this. This is a man who knew sexual sin well. You have no call to pick up your feet and to run away, but to stay put, to stand in battle against every kind of temptation like a knight and with patience to see it through and to triumph. Your weapon in this war is exactly what Jesus says in verses 28, 9, and 30. Your weapon in this war is the fact that there is nothing that you won't sacrifice to follow Jesus. Hands, eyes, houses, cars, time, talents, passions, pleasures, etc. Stand and wage war. And if you isolate yourself in this time, you lose. The church is full of messed up, broken people who are undergoing similar situations and who need to be pointed back to the cross of Christ. That's why we gather corporately. We gather together as a people to point one another to the fact that we are messed up people and we are in desperate need of a Savior. So getting radical about repentance means inviting others into the war against sin. Asking questions like, what do I value more than Christ? What changes do I need to make to follow Jesus more intimately? Does the inward transformation that has taken place in me match what's going on outside? Am I recognizing God's image in others or do I objectify them and see them as means to get where I want to go? So the first thing in conclusion this morning, get radical about repentance. And that takes us to our second concluding point. Cut off instruments of sin. We mentioned a smartphone earlier. Maybe it is that you need to set that aside. Maybe you have to let that go. Your television viewing choices, that might have to go too. One of the dangers of living in a hyper-sexualized culture is that if we're not steeped or, or engaged in the culture, then it seems strange, right? These things sometimes seem benign because everybody has a smartphone. And everybody, in order to have a conversation at work on Sunday morning, has to, or on Monday morning, has to watch the Game of Thrones on Sunday night. But they've slowly created a callus in your heart and blinded your eyes to the reality that your heart is steeped in sin. So cut off the instruments of your sin. Jesus is clear that kingdom citizens look different. Stott, I'll quote him again. He says this, We have had to become culturally maimed in order to preserve our purity of mind. The only question is whether, for the sake of this gain, we are willing to bear the loss and endure that ridicule. So cut off the instruments of your sin. Final thought, and then we're going to move to the Lord's table this morning. It is abundantly clear that you cannot, through this passage that we've looked at this morning, it is abundantly clear that you cannot entertain lustful intent in your heart and maintain right relationships with others. You cannot uh, entertain lustful intent in your heart and maintain right relationships with others. And having unresolved or broken relationship, having unresolved or broken relationship with others indicates broken relationship with God. God's image placed on people is discarded when others are objectified in our hearts and our minds. And whether it's your coworker or that Hollywood celebrity, by looking at someone outside of a marriage relationship with lustful intent, you have reduced them to an object to fuel your fantasies where you are in control. Here's another way that we seek to make ourselves king, right? We seek to use others for our own gain. 
our own pleasures, for our own pursuits. But there is a better way. Jesus tells us here, repent, turn for your sin, acknowledge that Christ is the King. And like Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 8, count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It includes eyes, it includes hands, it includes all things. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to move to the Lord's table. And we're going to take these elements. Typically as we do this regularly here at Buffalo City Church, you, when you're prepared to receive the elements, just come up to the table. Go ahead and grab the elements and, and take of them. You can partake either here or back in your seat. This is something that we do together as believers. Something that as those who have professed Christ, um, we participate in. You don't need to be a member of Buffalo City Church to participate, but you do need to be a, a follower of Jesus. So if you're not quite sure what that means, I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'd love to have a conversation. Um, or someone here who you see in front would love to have a conversation with you. But as we go to the table also, we want to come with a posture and, a, and an understanding that, that our relationships, both like we talked about last week and this week, need to be a reflection of what God is doing in our hearts um, and the newness that he has placed there. So as we look to the table, we want to come, we want to confess sin before God, and we want to be also open to confessing the sin that we might have or a wrong that we might have com committed against another. And we want to come here and we want to rejoice as well. Because even sin that seems pervasive and seems like we cannot overcome it in our day-to-day -day has been paid for by the shed blood of Jesus. A broken body, a righteousness granted to us, shed blood, sin washed away. These are the, the tools, the instruments that, that bought us eternal life. So we're going to go here this morning. Let me pray for us. When you're ready, go ahead and come forward and grab the elements and participate.